0: To this day, prohibition is seen as the greatest failed social experiment in American history. With the passing of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution on January 16, 1919, the production and sale of alcohol was forthwith banned in the United States, thus beginning a 14-year period of supposed nationwide dryness. In fact, statistics show that people actually drank more during prohibition than they did before or since. That's because the passing of this act led to some pretty creative ways for people to obtain alcohol, and the public simply couldn't get enough. This included making it themselves, the so named bathtub gin of the day, for example, which reportedly could cause blindness if made incorrectly, and bootlegging, in which various crime syndicates would smuggle hooch into the country from Canada or Mexico. It was this latter group of rum runners that would give rise to organized crime in America, with such figures as Al Capone and George Bugs Moran at the forefront of these so called illicit activities. Incidentally, it was also these two power players who formed the basis for today's episode. morning of February 14th, 1929, Valentine's Day, was cold and gray. A light snow had fallen overnight, blanketing the city of Chicago in a thin layer of white. An equally chilly wind blew in off Lake Michigan, causing people to turn their collars up. Other than that, it was business as usual. In the Lincoln Park neighborhood of the city, just a stone's throw from the waterfront, a clandestine meeting was taking place within a warehouse and garage at 2122 North Clark Street. Seven members of the infamous Northside Gang, a mixed Irish and Polish American crime syndicate, had been lured to the location with the promise of a stolen, cut-rate shipment of Canadian whiskey from the Purple Gang of Detroit. The warehouse in question was a regular meeting place for the Northsiders, who used it as a base of operations of sorts for their bootlegging racket. Led by George Bugs Moran, he, luckily for him, wasn't present that morning. Instead, the man in charge was his brother-in-law and second-in-command, Albert Katchalek, who also went by the alias of James Clark. Also present that morning were the gang's bookkeeper and business manager, Adam Heyer, two enforcers, the brothers Frank and Peter Gusenberg, one Albert Weinshank, who ran several cleaning and dyeing outfits for Moran, as well as two associates, Reinhardt H. Schwimmer, an optician-turned-gambler, and John May, a part-time auto mechanic for the syndicate. Thus, these seven men went about their business, completely unaware of what was about to unfold. At around 10.30 a.m., a Cadillac sedan pulled up to the warehouse, at which time four men emerged, armed with Thompson submachine guns, better known colloquially in those days as Tommy guns. Two were dressed as policemen, while the other two were wearing suits, ties, hats, and overcoats. No sooner had they stepped out of the car did they enter the garage, line the seven northside gangers up against the wall, and shoot them multiple times. Six of the victims died instantly, while one, the enforcer Frank Gusenberg, was still alive while authorities arrived at the scene, despite the fact that he'd been riddled with some 14 bullets. The spectacle that awaited them was described as a bloodbath, with each of the six victims being virtually unrecognizable due to their being shot multiple times Gusenberg, meanwhile, was transported to a local hospital, at which time doctors did the best they could to keep him alive It was then that the police questioned him When asked who was responsible for the crime, Gusenberg famously replied that, quote, no one shot me, unquote He died shortly thereafter, having succumbed to his wounds In the days following the incident, it was speculated that members of the notorious Italian-American crime syndicate known as the Chicago Outfit, led by the notorious gangster Al Capone, had carried out the shooting. The Chicago Outfit was the bitter rival of the Northside gang, the two of which had had several unpleasant exchanges and hits in the past. While Capone himself had been away in Florida at the time of the massacre, it's believed that he ordered the hit on Moran's men. The rivalry between the two factions had begun shortly after the passing of the 18th Amendment. Since Prohibition began, Moran and Capone had vied for dominance over the Chicago-area bootlegging empire. As the city was situated on Lake Michigan and relied heavily on Great Lakes trade, to say nothing of its proximity to Canada, smuggling hooch from across the border was relatively easy. Under cover of night, the Chicago outfit... Or more often than not, their friends in Detroit's Purple Gang would travel up the Detroit River to Detroit. There, a group of Canadian sellers would be waiting on the opposite shore in Windsor, Ontario. Using a complex system of flashlight signals and robo-crossings, the gangsters would pay the Canadians handsomely for their valuable supply of largely whiskey, but sometimes other potent potables. While the Northsiders had their own smuggling arrangements, the reigning theory behind the massacre is that they'd intercepted and stolen several barrels of whiskey from the Chicago Outfit Supply House. But the truth of the matter is that what came to be known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre by the press was the last straw in a series of particularly heated exchanges between the two syndicates. The Chicago Outfit, for example, had been responsible for wiping out the first three leaders of the Northside gang, Dino Banion, Jaime Weiss, and Vincent Drucci, respectively. Bugs Moran was fourth in line, and he retaliated by dispatching Frank and Peter Gusenberg to murder Jack McGurn, a famed boxer as well as one of Capone's goons. While the brothers were unsuccessful in this particular venture, they did managed to carry out the murders of mafiosi Pasqualino Pazzi Lulordo and Antonio the Scourge Lombardo, both of whom had been presidents of the Unione Siciliana, the local mafia branch comprised of Sicilian immigrants, and had maintained close ties with Capone and his racket. In addition, Moran began encroaching into Capone's territory, first by interfering in the latter's dog racing track outside the city, then taking over several of his saloons, insisting that they were within the North Side gang's jurisdiction. The plan, therefore, was to lure Moran and a few of his goons to the warehouse over on North Clark Street, whereupon they'd be shot and killed by Capone's hitmen. Luckily for Moran, as I stated earlier, he wasn't present that morning, though his associates weren't quite as fortunate. Naturally, an investigation was launched following the massacre. Just days after the incident, Capone himself was sent a summons to testify before a Chicago grand jury on charges of violating the federal prohibition, though he claimed he was, quote unquote, too unwell to attend. How convenient. With the Chicago outfits head honcho out of commission, as it were, the authorities turned their attention to the Purple Gang of Detroit. Comprised mostly of Jewish gangsters, it was later found that three Purple Gangers had taken rooms in a boarding house right across the street from the garage, just ten days before the shooting. Landlady's Mrs. Duty, you can't make this up, and Mrs. Orvidson picked out the mugshots of Eddie Fletcher, Phil Keywell, and George Lewis, though the two later reneged on the certainty of their claims. Police later cleared the three men, but things were about to get interesting. Eight days after the massacre, on February 22nd, police were called to the scene of a garage fire on Wood Street. There they found a 1927 Cadillac sedan, the same car that had pulled up to the North Clark Street warehouse on Valentine's Day, partially burned and completely disassembled. Upon finding the engine number, they traced the car back to a dealer on Michigan Avenue. When the authorities contacted the dealer, he told them he'd sold the car to one James Morton of Los Angeles. The garage where the charred automobile was found had been rented by someone calling himself Frank Rogers. While it was later revealed that neither of these men existed, an address attributed to Rogers led police to the Circus Cafe, a business owned by one Claude Maddox, a former gangster from St. Louis who still maintained close ties with Capone, the Chicago Outfit the Purple Gang, and St. Louis' own syndicate known as Egan's Rats. But what, if anything, did Maddox have to do with the Valentine's Day Massacre? While he hadn't done the shooting, his connections had certainly been involved. From the testimonies of both Elmer Lewis, a truck driver, and H. Wallace Caldwell, the president of the Chicago Board of Education at the time, it was revealed that, just minutes before the crime took place, Lewis's truck sideswiped a police cruiser on North Clark Street. When Lewis took a good look at the policeman inside, he described him as, quote, missing a front tooth. and was promptly waved away as if nothing had happened. Lewis naturally found this suspicious, as did Caldwell, who'd witnessed the accident on the street. From these eyewitness accounts, the authorities were certain that the policemen, in question were none other than Fred Burke, a former member of Egan's Rats, who famously dressed in official police uniform during heists. Burke, on the run from a murder and robbery indictment in Chicago, was believed to have been hired by Capone for the Valentine's Day job, though this wouldn't be proven until later. It was also deduced that one Joseph Lolordo had likely been one of the shooters, as his brother, Pasqualino, had been killed at the hands of the Northside gang and longed for revenge. From there, four more suspects, each of whom had ties to the Chicago outfit, were charged with involvement in the massacre. They were hitmen Albert Anselmi and John Scalise, two of the outfit's most notorious members, Frank Rio and the aforementioned boxer-turned-gambler, Jack McGurn. But as the saying goes, there's no honor among thieves. In May that year, Capone put a hit out on Anselmi and Scalise for conspiring against him and plotting to kill him. Thus, the pair were found murdered in their cells. McGurn, in the meantime, was cleared of all murder charges due to lack of evidence, at which point he quickly crossed state lines to marry his girlfriend, Louise Rolfe. Following the hits on Anselmi and Scalise, the case went cold for seven months until one day in December in St. Joseph, Michigan, local authorities raided the home of one Frederick Dane after a vehicle registered under his name was tied to that very same toothless policeman, quote unquote, that both Elmer Lewis and H. Wallace Caldwell had seen the morning of the massacre, Fred Burke. As it turned out, Dane and Burke were the same person, as proven by mugshot photos. At his home in St. Joseph, a large trunk was recovered, containing, among other things, $320,000 in stolen bonds from a Wisconsin bank, a bulletproof vest, two shotguns, thousands of rounds of ammo, a collection of pistols, and two Tommy guns, these last of which were turned over to Chicago authorities for forensic ballistics testing, a relatively new technology at the time, to link them with the murder weapons from the massacre. As it turned out, however, Burke ultimately wouldn't be nabbed for his involvement in the St. Valentine's Day massacres. Instead, he was charged for the murder of patrolman Charles Skelly on the St. Joseph PD, the latter of whom had pursued him one night after Burke had been drunk driving and rammed into another vehicle. Upon pulling him over, Skelly was shot three times and later succumbed to his wounds. The law finally caught up with Burke over a year later, however, on a farm in Missouri, at which time he was extradited to Michigan, charged with Skelly's murder and sentenced to life in prison, where he died in 1940. I know how frustrated you must be, dear listener, as at this point in the story only two men have been convicted for their involvement in the massacre, though they were ultimately executed by Capone's goons. That being said, I'm afraid I'll have to disappoint you even further, for even though no one else would be indicted for their crimes, a revelation of sorts would emerge eight whole years after the incident, following a completely unrelated case that involved J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. On January 8th, 1935, one Byron Bolton of Egan's Rats, as well as a Navy machine gunner, was arrested in a raid on a Chicago apartment. While in custody, he reportedly confessed his involvement in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre eight years prior. He claimed that the plan to kill Bugs Moran had been orchestrated all the way back in October of 1928 at a resort in Couderay, Wisconsin. Aside from Bolton, such criminal indignitaries as Capone himself, along with such noted gangsters as Fred Burke, Louis Campagna, Fred Goetz, Frank Nitti, and Gus Winkler, among others, were present. As the FBI had no jurisdiction in the state murder case and had no desire to become involved, they kept Bolton's testimony well under wraps until a second-hand version of it was leaked to the Chicago American, a local newspaper. In it, the article expounded on Bolton's involvement in the crime, noting how he and one Jimmy Moran were tasked with keeping watch over the garage and phoning the killer stationed at the Circus Cafe when Bugs Moran and his affiliates showed up. Here, the rest of the story more or less went as history recalls it. Although Bolton distinctly remembered seeing only plainclothesmen emerging from the Cadillac sedan in question when it arrived at the warehouse, a detail corroborated by Gus Winkler's widow, Georgette, in an official FBI statement, and which she later recounted in her memoirs. With this news circulating throughout the American press, the case was finally deemed solved. But was it really... The details surrounding the St. Valentine's Day Massacre are just as hazy today as they were then. In the near century that has elapsed, conflicting information and little concrete evidence have baffled historians and criminologists alike, making it one of the most discussed and debated crimes in American history. Although it's known for certain that Capone and the Chicago outfit carried out the hits against the Northside gang, it's unclear which specific members did the shooting. However, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre has entered the popular imagination, having been portrayed in various forms of media such as TV shows, video games, theater, and film, most notably the Billy Wilder comedy Some Like It Hot, starring Jack Lemon, Tony Curtis, and Marilyn Monroe. As for the scene of the crime itself, the warehouse and garage were ultimately razed in 1967, and a parking lot between two apartment buildings now Stands on the site. Much of the bricks of the north wall, which gruesomely still show bullet holes in the blood of the victims, were initially purchased by a Canadian businessman and later sold to several crime museums. Those that haven't fallen into the hands of private collectors throughout the years have ended up in the Mob Museum's collection in Las Vegas, Nevada, where they've been recreated into a wall that has since become its main attraction. And yet, the now nondescript location on North Clark Street in Chicago still draws true crime enthusiasts from all over the country and world, left to ponder what exactly happened that chilly Valentine's Day morning in 1929. Thanks for tuning in. Despite its having taken place on Valentine's Day, I think it's safe to say that there was no love between the Northside gang and Chicago outfit, but it's a topic that people love to discuss all the way up to the present. See what I did there? Happy belated Valentine's Day, dear listeners. I hope you all had a lovely holiday and that you celebrated with the ones you love. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to see more content from me, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany will help you facilitate this. Just click on the support button once you're there and choose the monthly support plan that best fits your budget. budget or monetary situation. Of course, listening and sharing also help me in big ways. So please do so on all streaming slash podcast platforms. Join me again next week for perhaps something a little less violent right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.